And now we'll have Gwen Sampson read us the Word of God. Today's scripture reading is from Colossians 3, verses 14 to 17. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body. And be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning. Uh, my name is Dan McDonald, and it's my great pleasure to welcome you on Mother's Day here to all you who are listening in. Happy Mother's Day. Uh, we are uh, continuing our series uh, on the book of Colossians, uh, chapter 3. It's a particular sustained deep dive into this issue of the resurrected life that Jesus Christ actually imparts and gives to people who believe in him and the incredibly transforming effect that it can have. This week, we're kind of continuing Paul's central theme on how the gospel transforms a very diverse community into a very tight supernatural unity where people from all walks of life, all ethnic backgrounds, all national backgrounds, different languages, different personality types, socioeconomic strata can come together in one indivisible supernatural unity that astonished the world and how our world today needs to be astonished by that kind of unity. We live in a fractured and divided world. Our culture split amongst several fault lines, people with massive divisions on how to move forward, on race, COVID, economic reinvigoration, sexual and medical ethics, government spending and involvement in people's lives, and a host of other issues. As our culture declines and fractures, we await a better answer. And here... And these words is a better answer. If the church is willing to show the world. But to do that, we need to be willing ourselves to listen to and trust these words of Jesus. Because too often in history, the church has simply imitated the culture. We've reproduced all of the divisions inside the church that are happening outside in the general culture. This was true in the days of slavery. This was true in the days of the sexual revolution, and it is certainly true today. The church, just as much as the culture, needs to be astonished anew at the transforming power of the resurrection of Jesus in our lives to make us a very different, very unified group of people. There are at least three problems in our culture right now that the eminent cultural apologist I'll keep his name anonymous, but his first name is Joe and his last name rhymes with boy, that that cultural analyst gave to me. Three problems that we see. Firstly, we don't have a common foundation that we can agree upon to move forward with. Secondly, we don't have any shared destination as to where we want to go as a culture. And thirdly, we don't have any vehicle that we agree upon to get us there. No foundation. No destination, no vehicle. But these three are here in this passage. 
It has a common foundation for us to start with. The gospel's love. It has a common destination for us to strive towards. God's peace, the peace of Christ, and the oneness of his body. And finally, it has a common vehicle, a common process to get us there. Letting the word of Christ, the gospel message, renew us continually. A common foundation, love. A common destination, peace. A common vehicle, gospel renewal. Let's look at those three. Firstly, a common foundation, love, from the 14th verse. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. Now, as we said, one of the problems of our culture in these conversations is we don't have a common foundation as to what is right and true and good that we can use to try and move forward. Let me give you an example. We, in the issue of race, keep talking past each other. We don't seem to have a shared definition of what racism is and means that we can agree upon. So the discussion seems to be going in circles and we keep talking past each other. One group's definition is apparently completely disqualified because it's got embedded within it ideas of white privilege. The other side's is equally apparently completely disqualified because it has been informed by something called critical race theory. So we don't even listen to each other. We have such different foundations upon which we're having this discussion. So moving forward has proven very difficult. But in the gospel, on the other hand, Paul lays here a foundation, a shared highest priority of what is good for all of us to come back to and use as our foundation. It, it is Love, gospel love, the kind of love God poured out upon us in Christ, unconditional, forgiving love, is the kind of love we are to pour out upon each other. Paul uses a metaphor here. His metaphor is this. We're going on a journey. So he's been asking us since verse 12 to put on clothes, compassion, kindness, meekness, humility. But here he says, above all, putting them all together, put on love. It's the great outer cloak that makes the whole outfit come together, as it were. Put on love. This is the priority of love. Love as the great agent here, the most important one, the one in whom all the other ones find their foundation. And this is consistent with the gospel. Everywhere in the New Testament, God says love is, is the priority. Jesus says the greatest commandment is this, love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as you would love yourself. The Apostle Paul, writing to another church, the church of Corinth, in 1 Corinthians 13 says this, if I have prophetic powers, and I understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and I have all faith so as to move mountains, but I don't have love, I'm nothing. If I give away all that I have, and if I deliver up my body to be killed and burned, but I don't have love, I gain nothing. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love is the one central priority. He speaks here not just of the priority of love, though. In the words that follow that word, he shows of its centrality. It needs to be embedded in everything. 
He says, let love bind everything together in perfect harmony. That, that word bind in, in the Greek, is, it's a binding agent that holds other things together. It's used of sinews and tendons that hold bones and muscles together inside of a body. It's the thing that orders them and gives them a harmony and allows them to work together. That's what is meant by love here. It's meant to permeate everything. Your love, your courage, your compassion, your confronting, your everything to give them a perfect harmony. And we actually need that, don't we? Last week when we began to talk about this issue of unity through talking about conflict, I had over 30 questions in the Q&A through the telephone, through the, the, the texting. Unusual amount of questions. And here's what most of them were. Well, when do I confront? And when do I bear? When do I challenge them when they're blame shifting? What do I do when they do? In other words, some of these things that I'm supposed to do, bear things, confront at times, forgive, they compete with each other. They don't always fit together. What's the thing that makes them work together? When do I do what? Great questions. They all were. Paul here is beginning to answer them. He says, if you want to know how to balance, you're in good company. If if these things seem to be intention, you're in good hands. Proverbs 24 admits this. Listen to Proverbs 24, 26, excuse me, verses 4 and 5. Proverbs 26. One of my favorite Proverbs, totally bizarre. Answer not a fool according to his folly, lest you be like him yourself. Great. Don't answer a fool. Next verse. Answer a fool according to his folly, lest they become wise in their own eyes. See? Sometimes you're supposed to answer. Sometimes you're not supposed to answer. What's the difference? Paul says, let love help you know when. Let love be your wisdom. Look at the wisdom of Jesus shown in the love of Jesus towards Peter. Paul met Peter early on in, in, I mean, Jesus met Peter. (laughs) Early in his ministry, he called Peter to be a disciple. They went fishing. He said, cast your nets on the other side. Hey, we've had no fish. We're fishermen. You're some rabbi. You don't know what you're doing. Put them on the other side. Puts them on the other side. Greatest catch in history. Boat's almost drowning. Peter looks at him and he's afraid. Depart from me, Lord, for I'm a sinful man. He realizes Jesus is some anointed prophet of God. Doesn't quite realize who he is yet, but he feels God's presence and it scares him. And Jesus looks at this afraid, insecure man. What does he say? He says, do not fear. From now on, you'll be catching men. I will exalt you to a place that few people have ever been. Okay, fast forward a few months later. Peter's got his confidence. Jesus says he has to go to the cross. Peter, on behalf of the apostles, I'm going to rebuke you, Jesus. <laughs> what does Jesus do then? What does love require? He confronts him. Get behind me. Get back to following me, you adversary. Flash forward a little more time. At the end of Jesus' ministry, he's about to be crucified. He's about to be arrested. He tells them that they will abandon him. And Peter says, huh, not me, even though they will fall away. I will not. Presumptuous, proud. What does Jesus say? Before a rooster crows, you'll deny me three times. And then, after he's risen, Jesus meets Peter again, now filled with shame for his abandonment and denial of Jesus. 
How does he treat him? As love calls him to. Do you love me? Yeah. Feed my lambs. I'm reinstating you as a shepherd of the sheep. You've learned. You see, love, love helped the love one, Jesus, to have the wisdom to know what would make Peter flourish and what he needed at every given moment. Did he need confrontation? I'll give it to him. Did he need admonishment? Did he need encouragement? Did he need reinstating mercy and forgiveness? Love gives you that wisdom. And so ask yourself, with the love that you have, what does this person need right now to flourish from me? And that will help you answer whether they need compassion or confrontation, whether they need forgiveness or whether they need admonishment. What do they need? Let love bind it all together in perfect harmony. Start with this common foundation. I will put on love. And you can begin this journey towards unity. Secondly, though, with that common foundation, where are we going? Where are we going? What's the shared destination? He says in the next verse, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. In this verse, we see a shared destination one that our culture struggles to find. Our culture is struggling in many different ways. The World Economic Forum has just put out a great reset that they had in 2020 at the Davos Institute. They're talking about a great reset, a clear rethinking of capitalism and national markets and national sovereignty towards more globalized regulation of capitalism and globalized diminishment of national sovereignties. That's what they're saying. But as we look at the fracturing of unity in Europe with Brexit and other movements, with the rise of right-wing nationalism and the, and the pushback against globalization in so many places, there's real disagreement. We look at our present cultural conversation on social justice, and we look at Margaret Atwood a progressive icon for all the years that I was growing up, J.K. Rowling, Salman Rushdie, writing with others a letter printed in Harper's Magazine in July saying this present progressive culture, and they're progressive icons, this present progressive culture has got an illiberalism built within it that is canceling freedom of speech and academic freedom. Even within our progressive ranks, we don't know where we need to go. But here in the gospel, there is a clear shared definition for us It says, once you put on that coat, okay, where are you going? Firstly, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. That's our destination. What does this phrase, peace of Christ, mean? Well, it certainly always means the emotional, psychological peace that comes to a Christian that realizes they've been forgiven by God. That has to be part of this answer. And it certainly means the objective peace between you and God that Christ has achieved By his death for you, taking the guilt of your sin upon himself so you don't have to pay for that guilt. The root of alienation between you and God has been removed. That's certainly what the peace of Christ must mean here. But this phrase, rule, in your hearts, and the following phrase about being one body tells us where the central emphasis of this peace of Christ in this passage is focused. 
And it's focused on the peace of Christ and the removal of alienation that is between us and God now being applied to between us and each other. That's what it means. This word rule means an arbitrator or an umpire. Let the peace of Christ umpire in your hearts when you're struggling with tension and can't figure out a way to go. So we'd seen put on love, and love says, how shall that person flourish? But sometimes you don't even know how to make that person flourish. So then the peace of Christ gives you a decision. Okay, we are called for peace. Then let me make a decision that's loving and moves toward this kind of peace. See the wisdom and the power in that? That peace, that peace, the peace of Christ... The peace through grace, the peace through God's unconditional forgiveness, let that peace that comes through us acknowledging our sin and the wrong as it really is before God and thanking God for paying the price for giving his life, that peace, not some fuzzy peace, gospel-rich peace, the peace that admits the truth of our own human selfishness, admits our own need for Christ's forgiveness, admits our own human wrong, that peace is what should animate Christian interactions with each other. Unless we still do not understand, look at that second phrase. You are called to one body. Paul is saying this. When you become a Christian, you are called to be God's child, and you are called to be part of God's body with everybody else. Guess what? Who's everybody else? The people you're in tension with. So who are they? They are joint heirs with you of Christ. They are joint recipients with you of God's grace. They are joint members of his body with you. Do you see the glory of this picture? If you're called to be God's child, you're called to be one body with you and you and you and me. We're all called to be one body together and to work together. We've not just purchased our individual salvation. He's purchased our indivisible unity one with another. We're one body. Now act like it. When you read that passage, where is there room here to be a racist? Find it for me, will you? Where is there room to be sexist? Find it for me, will you? Where is there room to be homophobic? Find it for me. It's impossible. We are equally made in God's image. Equally guilty of God's, of sin in God's eyes. Equally loved by God through Jesus. Equally forgiven Christian by faith in Jesus through his dying on the cross to pay for us. Where is there room for treating someone differently because they don't share your skin color? They don't share your ethnic heritage. They don't share your language of origin. Where is there room for dividing over political views? Where? Nowhere. Christian socialists and Christian capitalists, where is there room for us to divide? Christian lovers of critical race theory and Christian haters of critical race theory, where is there room for us to divide based on that? Nowhere. Where is there room to divide over the different responses we have to COVID, to reopening, 
You can have differences of opinion, but not division. If you divide over something like this, you are in direct rebellion against the God who said we are one body and called to it. If you're called to individual forgiveness and salvation, you are called to indivisible unity as a group. People are always surprised when they come to Grace Toronto and find out we hold these very traditional Christian doctrines, very historic Christian doctrines. And yet we embrace people with all kinds of different ideas about all kinds of things. People don't know what to do with us because we're almost vintage antique in our historic Christian views, but so across the spectrum in our political and cultural views. We seem kind of wishy-washy to a lot of people. Really? I think we actually are taking seriously this call to unity that's right here and is an imperative in Colossians 3. There's no room in this verse for me to exclude people because they don't agree with me on infant baptism or CRT or COVID or Doug or Justin or anything else that isn't essential to the gospel. Now, there's the pushback, though. Many of us who've been Christians a long time say that this word peace can be a bit fuzzy, and this idea of unity has been used often in the history of the Christian church to allow for changes to historic Christian doctrine and compromises. I I agree. We're not called to that kind of wishy-washy peace. This is the peace of Christ that's called to rule and arbitrate an umpire. And when you see Paul applying that, Paul doesn't feel it's fuzzy. Paul said to the Galatians, if anyone preaches a different gospel than I am, if he adds something to the gospel, something other than Jesus Christ and what he has done, let him be accursed. That's not fuzzy. There is room to divide, but get this. The early church was very rigorous and very tough on departures from the gospel and the truth of the gospel and the freedom of the gospel, doctrine, and how it's applied. They were rigorous in in insisting upon the central implications of the gospel, unity, mutual love, and the freedom of faith in Christ. But they were pretty relaxed about differences of opinion about politics and cultural argumentation. Look at the present North American church. We're the opposite. We're lax on the central doctrines of the gospel. We're pretty weak on the central implications of the gospel. Unity and mutual love. But we are very rigorous over dividing on issues of politics and culture. We have flipped it. When a skeptic walked into the early church... They were like, you aren't arguing over any of the arguments that we're arguing about here. You're arguing about food to idols and circumcision and and outward behavior versus inside-out spirituality. That's not what we're talking about out there. But when they come into our church, are they hearing the exact same divisions that they're hearing out where they live? Do you wonder why a skeptical culture pays little attention to us when we're divided over the exact same things the culture is. They see no differences. They see a 
community that's not very different from them. It has some weird religious beliefs, but it has the same divisions over the same things. What's it got to give them? A skeptic in the early church was astonished at what they were arguing and not arguing about. A skeptic walking into the church in North America, would they be astonished? Would it be that they would be astonished? Shared foundation, put on love. Shared destination, the peace of Christ ruling, arbitrating in our hearts, called to oneness, one body. Love is the clothing for the journey. Peace is the destination. Now finally, how do we get there? What's the route? What's the vehicle? Shared route, shared vehicle, he says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Here's the shared vehicle, the shared route. Paul is taking off on the last imperative of the last sentence where he said, be thankful. It was just kind of hangs there, doesn't fit really this one body, peace of Christ motif. But it's actually a bridge to this one because this one bridges off of that word, be thankful, by saying, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Now, here's another imperative. See the parallels. Let the peace of Christ rule, arbitrate, umpire in you. Let the word of Christ dwell. The Greek word means inhabit, live among you. They're parallel verses, and you're meant to see them as working together. This is how we get the unity of the body and the peace of Christ, that destination, by letting the Word of Christ dwell within us richly. Now, the Word of Christ here doesn't mean the whole Bible corpus. It means the specific message of the gospel of Jesus Christ come into humanity to live, to die, and to rise for the forgiveness of sins and the redemption of humanity from our common misery. That's what he means by the word of Christ. But he says here, let it make a home in you, at home. We had a um, distinct privilege uh, uh, several years ago when we were living in Florida of having an NFL football player live with us. Now, it's, uh, we didn't have any kids then, but suddenly we had a six foot three, 330-pound lineman living with us. He'd been living with other, um, a- another single um, NFL player, but that person was just gotten married, so he needed to move out so the wife could move in, and he didn't have a place, so he lived with us for a few months while he figured it out. And after a few months, he got to inhabit the place. He knew where the electrical box was. He knew where all the food was in the kitchen. He knew how to navigate the pantry. He knew where the laundry was. He knew just about every part of the house. That's what this is talking about. Letting the gospel of Jesus' forgiveness and grace go to every single part of your heart, every little room, every nook, and every cranny so that the gospel knows where the coriander spices are kept. The gospel knows the hidden closets where your darkest fears are hidden and the dusty attic where your deep, deepest lusts are quietly shh, shh, hidden but nourished. This is what is being talked about here, that we allow the gospel to come so deeply into us 
that every nook and cranny is known and therefore open to being transformed. You see, that's what we do when we let the gospel in everywhere, when we apply it to every part of our heart. And Paul describes a worship service where this begins to happen, where we're able to teach and admonish one another, where we sing songs and hymns and spiritual songs with gratitude in our hearts to God. There's that thankfulness again. What he's saying is that there's a deep inner transformation that happens when you let the gospel into every, every place of your body and soul. And this is what happens. Thankfulness, gratitude becomes the primary emotion with which you look at your life. And so I need to ask you, what primary emotion wakes you up in the morning? What primary emotion is how you face your life? If the gospel has really made its home in you, by the word being preached, by the word being read and filled, by the gospel making its home, by your small group and reinforcing it, then you have a life that looks at the world for gratitude to what God has done for you in Jesus. Gratitude for who God is to you because of Jesus. You see, then gratitude begins to fill your life. And gratitude begins to give you again the wisdom to deal with tension. People often complain, actually, about our services. Uh, I've heard this for years. You know, Grace Toronto services are good, but the preaching, you know, it always ends with Jesus. It's like it's really for people who are outside the faith or brand new Christians. I need something more meaty. I need something more substantial. We've been talking about this for years, okay? Did you read the verse? What's going to get you to the deepest levels of astonishing, supernatural unity that is a light to the world? That will give you the wisdom to deal with conflicts. That will give you the destination and the foundation so that you can truly astonish a skeptical and needy culture. What is it that's going to drive you to that level of supernatural maturity? It's dwelling on the message of the gospel. Do you know why at Grace Toronto we finish every sermon with Jesus? Not just because Tim Keller told me to, and he did. He said to a bunch of us, not just me, we were in training, he said, I don't mind if people take notes for the first 15, 20 minutes of my message. But in the last five to eight minutes, when I'm talking about Jesus, if I'm not getting those pens put down, I have failed. Why? Christian, I need to ask you, do you need more information on what to do? Sure, you could always use more knowledge. But most of the time, where's your real struggle? Knowing what to do? Or having your heart so filled with gratitude that you just want to do what you know already you need to do. Where's the battle won or lost? Where? Knowledge? Motivation? Desire? You know why we finish with Jesus every week? Because I'm a, 
as a preacher, 30 plus years as a Christian, I need my heart warmed. I need to lose the lens of insecurity, trying to prove myself, pride, whatever it is. And I need to put on the lens of gratitude for my day. I need the word of Christ to inhabit those deep, dark areas where I want to build my identity on something else. And so do you. The gospel is for Christians too. Jesus is what everybody needs. And so now we're going to go there with your permission. Who put on love as his final cloak that binds everything he did together? Who in the security and comfort of life as God the Son decided to become a human being and put on love and when he was rejected still kept going and put on love and when he was sinned against kept going and put on love and when he was tempted said not as I will but let your will be done Father because he put on love and went to the cross and said it is finished Because love had helped him capture peace. Peace between two parties at complete alienation with each other. You and me and God. Peace was his destination. And what was his route? What was his vehicle? The death of himself. The gospel of his own sacrifice. This great high priest had one sacrifice to give. And he offered his own body. Do we actually want the peace of Christ? Then put on love. Aim for peace and unity. Meditate and dwell and grow deeper in the beauty of the grace of the gospel and the glory of Jesus. Let's pray. Father, I thank you. And I praise you for your goodness to us. Help us this day to take seriously the call to gospel unity, to take seriously the call to letting the peace of Christ rule, to take seriously the call to letting the gospel get to every nook and cranny of our heart. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. I'm going to make a game time decision. I've gone a little bit long, so I'm going to call the worship team up. And I'm going to answer your Q&As privately. I think this is a better moment for us not to think about the questions we have. But to think about the questions God has for you. Take a moment now. Do the heart surgery that you need to do. Ask yourself, is the lens of gratitude the lens through which I am seeing everything? Is the cloak of love the foundation for which I am approaching all issues of tension and division? Is the destination of peace and the calling to one body where I am pointing all of my efforts to? And am I allowing the gospel 
to drip its way into the driest, darkest, parched places of my soul. Think about that for a moment. Reflect on that for a moment. As we get ready to respond, let me pray. Father, I pray that we would allow this question to ask questions, this text to ask questions of our heart. Let's take a moment now and subject ourselves to this call to unity through peace, out of love. And let us see Christ, we pray in Christ's precious name. Amen.